I became a new Christian, this was my kind of chapter. My friends and I, we loved the book of Revelation. We love the book of Daniel. We love all those parts of the Bible that talk about the end of the world. I mean, think about what what 17-year-old, I mean, we didn't understand half of what we were reading, but what 17-year-old wasn't totally fascinated by by demons and and cataclysmic destruction and and nations at war against nation and monsters and all that in the Bible, right? How, How cool is that? And so years later, when Ace and I, the drummer in my band, became these uh, volunteer youth pastors at this church we planted, any time we taught a series on what became known as the end times at a Thursday night Bible study, man, it was packed. We'd have kids from all over the neighborhood showing up. And most of these kids weren't Christians. They didn't grow up in a church. And so all they knew about Christianity was that it was about Jesus, uh, something about love and forgiveness, right? And those are all good things. But when they heard about this Bible study and they were talking about nuclear war in the Bible, man, they showed up in droves, right? Now, now to be fair, um, there are portions of the scriptures, if you read like Zechariah and Ezekiel, that when you read that, you kind of go, wow, it kind of sounds like what a nuclear bomb does, but I don't know. So I'm not saying that's what it says, but I'm not saying that's not what it says. I'm just saying that's what we kind of thought it meant back then, and that's what we taught. The only other time we had more kids that showed up at our Bible study was when we did Bible studies on, on dating in the Bible. And so Ace and I had this great idea. Let's do a series on dating in the end times, man. And it was like, it was epic. We had kids all over the place, right? Now, in our defense, it wasn't because we were new Christians and we just went to the sensational portions of the Bible. Uh, this was the environment of the time of Christianity where, when I became a Christian in the late 80s. It's just, it seemed like you couldn't get away from talking about the end of the world. There were prophecy conferences on it. There were prophecy Bibles being published. There were books. There were, there were movies. There were teaching series upon teaching series. And, and frankly, as I look back now, it was all a little bit over the top and a little silly. As Christians, we couldn't tell you how to practically love your neighbor or overcome sin, but we could sure tell you about Daniel's seven weeks of tribulation or who Gog and Magog were in Revelation 20, right? Thankfully, we all kind of mellowed out. I think the church has mellowed out from that kind of end times frenzy. But I kind of think the, the pendulum has swung maybe too far on the other side, I think there was a reaction about focusing on all the details of prophecy and forgetting about the discipleship that prophecy was supposed to inspire in all of us. One thing I do miss, for those of you who remember that time, and if you're like 45 and older, you can remember this time, there was a sense of urgency in the church. I mean, you remember the motto that was on almost everyone's lips. I had a friend with a big old belt buckle that that actually said it. It was two words, maybe today. Remember that? Everyone would say, maybe today. Maybe today is the day Jesus comes back. And, and, And that motto, that sense of urgency really set the trajectory for a lot of us, the way we would live our lives in light of that day maybe today. I think as I look around the church, maybe we we could use with a little sense of urgency, couldn't we? If we had that kind of maybe that, that prophetic understanding, maybe we wouldn't be futzing around so much with the things of this world and our minds would be on the things of God and the realization that this, this is just in a blink of an eye, he's coming back and reality is going to be very different. 
Now, to be clear, as we study Mark 13, which is a chapter about that, I'm not arguing that we go back to the details of the prophecy, right? But I am arguing that maybe we reevaluate what the Bible teaches, what theologians call eschatology, the things of the end times, and focus on the discipleship points that we see all written throughout it. And so that's exactly how I'm going to approach Mark chapter 13 this morning. I apologize to any of you who showed up thinking, yeah, now we're going to find out who's the abomination of desolation in, in, in verse 14, yes. Or was it Rome that Jesus was talking about when, when, Emperor, when General Titus came in in AD 70 and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple? Is that what's going on here? Now, to be clear, I have an opinion on all those things. I think this is worthwhile study. But I don't think that's why Mark recorded that and put that here in Mark 13, or in this, in this 13th chapter. I think Mark, we're going to see very clearly, wanted us to understand the two very broad points that Jesus is trying to make in Mark 13. And it wasn't to give us a kind of prophetic puzzle to figure out how this all fits together, as much as it was to, to exhort the church to obedience and faithfulness to help us to endure through difficulty and to have a fiery hope of what's happening and what's going to come. So I think the two broad statements we see, the two broad points in Mark 13, that Jesus' teaching is number one, that if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, disciples of Jesus have to realize that we live, we're going to live and love and serve Christ in a world that hates, rejects, and opposes Him. Secondly, if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you need to understand that you're going to live, love, and serve a Christ with the sure knowledge that he is supreme and he has his unstoppable sovereignty. I think that's what the point of Mark chapter 13 is trying to make. And, and the real application of that actually comes at the very end. You can't miss it, starting in verse 32 towards the end. He says it five different times. Actually, he says it even more throughout the whole chapter. But towards the end, he piles it on. Did you hear it when we were reading it? Be awake. Do not be asleep at the wheel, Christian. Be vigilant because any moment things are going to change. That's the message we have here in Mark chapter 13. So let's take a look at, at this amazing chapter and what Christ has to teach us about the end of all things and the way we live our Christian lives. So let's look at point number one, that disciples are going to live, love, and serve Christ in a world that rejects, hates, and opposes Him. Now, it's really important when you think about where this 13th chapter flows in Mark's gospel. Because up until this point, the disciples have, you remember as we've taught you, there was this kind of fervor of, of Jesus is going to overthrow the shackles of Rome and it's going to be a whole, usher in a whole new age, but Jesus has been challenging that, right? But up until this point, all the disciples have known, have, they've known is victory in Christ in the sense that no one's been able to, to, to stand up against Jesus. No one's been able to challenge his power or authority. Uh, not the forces of nature, not the Sanhedrin, not even the demonic realm. All they've ever known is that things are looking up. And so this is a very strategic chapter that, that Mark puts here because this is really a hinge point because starting next week, it's going to seem like all they know is tragedy, loss, and failure. So Mark 13 is very pivotal 
because it's the hinge point from everything's looking up, we, 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 we hitched our ride to the right train here, this is going to be awesome, and then all of a sudden, everything goes sideways. Keep in mind, this is Passion Week, the final week of Jesus in Jerusalem. And in, when he came into Jerusalem, they were shouting, what, Hosanna? And when he ends his time, they're yelling, crucify. Now, you've got an insight as to why that dramatic shift has taken place, but Jesus is preparing disciples. Get ready, because things are going to be very different their world is going to be turned upside down. I just want to pastorally, that's a significant thing we need to recognize as Christians. That so often the Bible gives us these wonderful promises and principles and, and, and they, they are not to the exclusion that we're going to live in a world where things are going to be difficult. It's going to seem like tragedy, loss, and failure. But we can't give in to those things because we have the sure written word of God of the promises we look forward to. And we have those, not because they guarantee we will never suffer or endure hardship. As a matter of fact, we have those because we will endure hardship and we have them to remind us that that's not, what, that's not gonna have the last word. So Jesus is equipping his disciples that things are gonna be very different. Not just immediately what they're going to face in the next couple of weeks or couple of months of their lives. But in a sense, Jesus is laying out, and remember, we talked about prophecy, that there's these very many, there's immediate fulfillment, there's, there's medium fulfillment and ultimate fulfillment. This isn't just that things are going sideways really quick for these disciples. Jesus, in, a, in effect, is describing this human epoch, this, this time when we live, when the kingdoms of this war of this world are at war with the kingdom of God that Jesus announced. You remember his very first words in Mark's gospel? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. And this is a sovereign king, and he abides no usurper kings or kingdoms. And so what he's saying is that this world is at war. All these mini kingdoms of our own, even the mini kingdoms of our own heart, are going to be do one of two things. We're either going to submit to the sovereignty of the true king, or we're going to go to war. And Jesus is reminding them that this world is at war, and this is what he's describing. You and I live within this war, friends. Don't forget that. It's easy to do so in America. It's easy to do so in Southern California. It's easy to do so in South Orange County. But we are at war. We live within this war We've been in this war since time began, and it only ends until verse 26 comes to pass. So Jesus is going to mention now three evidences of this war. Jesus is going to give three evidences of this system that rejects him, that opposes him, and that is against him. We see that number one, the thing he's going to describe is the spiritual deception on a grand scale. You notice that as, as, as they ask him, what's the sign of all these things going to happen? He leads by telling them, do not let someone lead you astray. Verse 5 and 6, many are going to come in my name saying, I am he, and they're going to lead many astray. You look at verse 21. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and deceive many. Now, although there are many forms of deception that, that, that we need to be on guard against, it's interesting that Christ would focus on these false claims of the false Christs. 
And friends, there are many around today as there were in Christ's time, whether it's the false Christ of Mormonism, whether it's the false Christ of Jehovah Witness, whether it's the false Christ of, the, uh, of Trinity Broadcasting Network and the, the, the prosperity gospel, whether it's the false Christ of our own creation, whether it's the false Christ of rationalism and the, aid, the mind of our age that Jesus was just a man, the person of Christ is always going to be attacked because he's the focal point of God's redemptive plan. So he says, be on guard for that. This is why, friends, in our um, disciple, uh, disciple Maker curriculum uh, that we started this past February, uh, one of the key things we think Christians need to know, and remember we created a one-year plan with the idea that if, you, if you've been a Christian for a year, these are the fundamentals you should at least need to know and understand to be an effective disciple. And one of those things is a six-week course on how to interpret the Bible. Because friends, false doctrine and false Christ are not gonna show up saying, hi, I'm false doctrine, would you like to believe in me? That's not how that goes, right? False doctrine, false Christ always seem like the real thing. They're deceptive. Early church father, Arrhenius of Lyons, he was a bishop, said this in his book, Against Heresies in the Second Century. Error indeed is, by the way, that's supposed to be Irenaeus if you're wondering. Error indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. Arrhenius was just rephrasing what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder. And no wonder, why? Because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Friends, let us not be so naive to think that everyone who says that they are a Christian, that everyone says that they are teaching the Word of God, that they are biblical, are so. This is why we want to encourage you every Sunday, bring your Bible. This is, this is why I make you flip through pages to make you bring your Bible, because you need to check that what's coming from this pulpit is consistent with what the Bible actually says. I could put up all kinds of verses on this screen and make the Bible say whatever I wanted to. You need to be aware. You need to be discerning. You need to grow. You need to learn. And God has blessed this church with 50 years of gospel faithfulness. We're celebrating that this next year. But in, part, in part because there have been good shepherds and also because we have a good congregation. But let's not be so naive to think that that is so easy and will always be the case. Guard this pulpit as the word goes out. Guard your ears. Guard your families. Know the truth. Be discerning. Because Christ said, when he said, hey, you want to know what's going to happen? There's going to be spiritual deception on a grand scale. Secondly, the second evidence that Christ gives in Mark 13 is he's showing us that we're living in a disordered world. Look at verse uh, 7. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place. 
I just got through reading this book about a week ago. Uh, I wanted to learn more about Europe's history, so I read the uh, Cornell University professor, The Short History of Europe, from Pericles to Putin. And after I got done reading it, I told my wife, sweetie, I don't think any historian worth his salt could ever believe in the humanistic idea that man is inherently good. There's just, there's just no way around it. If I had to describe the history of Europe in one word, it'd be war. <laughs> that, as far back as 2800 BC with the Mycenaeans all the way up to our present day, if I had to describe Europe, it's war, one word. And, and that's not just a Western thing, right? I know it's kind of popular to kind of critique Western civilization now. You look to our brothers and sisters in the East, it's not much better. Just this century alone, was it last week? We celebrated the 70th year of the Communist Chinese Party. It was started by Chairman Mao, slaughtering tens of millions of their own people. Southeast Asia under the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. The, the Asian uh, dictators are not outdone by their European rivals. The heart of man is full of bloodshed and thirst for violence. And it's all over. More to the point, though, in, in back to Mark 13, these early disciples would experience this very reality. Just a few decades after Jesus would say these words, they would see General Titus coming down from Rome. And things got so to a boiling pot that it out, broke into all-out war in the war of uh, AD 66, culminating in AD 70 when General Titus destroyed Jerusalem, devastated the temple. And a few years later, we had that massacre in Masada in 73 AD, 74 AD. If you know anything about Jewish history, to this day, if you go to Israel, to this day, the one symbol they have is a, the symbol of Masada, never again. Never again. But it's not simply nations at war. Jesus tells us when nations are at war, it's just symptomatic of the war in the human heart. Look at what happens in families. Verse 12. And brother will deliver brother to death, and father's child and children against their parents. And they will drag you before the councils. They'll drag you into your synagogues. He's talking to those that are, those are early disciples. And this, this just kind of is the segue into the third evidence of how this war is against the Lord, and that is the third evidence is the persecution of the Christian community. Verse 9 through 13 talks about that we persecuted everywhere. Verse 19 uh, and following, for in those days there will be such a tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. Friends, with, with the, the beginning of, uh, if you're a note taker, write down Acts chapter 7. With the martyrdom of Stephen, AD 31 to 33 roughly, from the beginning, the Christian church, the Christian community has always known violence and persecution. Now to be sure, I know that, that sounds really odd for us, where we live, where the vice president is a committed Christian. He used to attend the church my friend pastored at in Indiana before he became the vice president. He, he's a Christian in the White House, vice president. But friends, make no mistake, that's just an anomaly. The, the benefit we all share is an anomaly of, of time and history and globally. Do not think this is how it is. It's not. Some of you have friends who understand persecution. 
your grandfather was persecuted. I have friends who have been persecuted for their faith in Africa. This is such an anomaly that we experience here. Violence and persecution is the norm, which is why I believe we need to uphold the rights that we have, the freedom of religion, because it's such a rare thing relative to history. Persecution's the norm, not the exception, friends. It really is. And maybe we'll see some of that happen in our own country. And that might be very good. Persecution in America would be very good for us. It wouldn't be good for evangelicalism. It'd be devastating for the structures of this enterprise we call evangelicalism, but it'll be great for the gospel. It'll be great for the gospel. And Jesus is reminding his disciples that persecution will come, not just from family, not just from friends, but governments, kings, civil leaders, you name it, and it makes sense because as he said in John's gospel, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will also keep yours. See, friends, Jesus is simply saying that this is the world you're going to live in. This is the world you're going to be living in. It is deceived, it is disordered, and it's full of persecution towards you. I get it, guys. As a father, I don't want my kids to live in that world, but that's the world they live in, and that's the world I got to prepare them for. The details, when you, when you think of it that way, the details of, of what we often confuse with the end times really don't seem to matter. What matters is that we're prepared for it, that we're ready for it, that we're anticipating it, and that we can endure it, that we stay awake, right? That we're prepared to endure and that we don't lose our hope, which then begs the question, <laughs> in the world, do you prepare for that kind of a world? How do you prepare your children to live in that environment? How do you prepare anyone to live in that environment? And that is the second broad point that Jesus is making in Mark chapter 13, that there first needs to be an understanding. There's a brutal reality here, but also the hope that there's a beautiful truth. And just as Jesus gives three evidences of this world that rejects him, that stands against him, he's going to give three evidences that give us the sure knowledge in the face of all this. He's supreme that he is sovereign. The first one is that he, disciples need to know that they will live, love, and serve the Lord with the sure knowledge of his supremacy and sovereignty. And the first reason we know this, you see in verse 10, is the evangelization of the world. Friends, get this, wrap your mind around this for as bleak a picture as Mark 13 just casts for us, amidst all the deception, all the disorder, all the persecution, this gospel is going out throughout the world. Look at it there, right there in chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus says it. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Guys, you guys, you want to hear some really good news? So just blow your mind that you're not going to read out there. This is not something our, our, our mainstream media talks about. In 1999, the Wycliffe Bible Translators, amazing organization, uh, set as their goal that by the year 2025, they want to have a Bible project, a Bible translation project started in every lang spoken language on the planet. 
Of the 6,909 spoken languages on our planet, only 2,200 do not have a complete Bible translation. And here's the exciting thing, friends. Because of the advance of technology and because so many people have committed themselves to linguists and translation, they are on target to hit their goal. It's called the Last Languages Campaign. I put a link on this on Realm for you if you want to read more about it and maybe even support it and get behind it. Friends, think about this. In our lifetime, we will be able to have God's Word translated into every spoken language on the planet in our lifetime. And if they stick true, within the next six years. But here's, here's, here's the thing that's just amazing. I was thinking about this this morning. I have a friend who works with, for uh, Summer Institute of Linguistics, and, and he works with Wycliffe. It's amazing. It's not persecution that's going to be the problem here. Guess what the problem is going to be in stopping us from reaching this goal? Hey, Siri. Siri, Alexa. You go, what? The, what? Smart what? Apple? Google? What? No, no. What's going on is now that we're so caught up with, I want to be able to talk to my devices, guess who's gobbling up all the linguists and all the people who work in translation and how phonetics work? Amazon, Google, Facebook. And so now people who are going into this field, here's the offer. I can kind of live a life of barely making ends meet, raising support so I can translate the Bible for some small people group in the Amazon, or I can make a seven-figure income working at Amazon. Now, Amazon and Amazon, they both need the gospel. The point is, so often it's not persecution we have to worry about, but opportunities and blessings. Right now, Amazon needs believers there too. My point simply is, pray that the work continues and that the last language campaign finishes, right? Mind-blowing stuff. Um, here's another one, the Joshua Project. And I put this link on Realm this morning as well because you've got to visit this website. It's great. The, the Joshua Project is a, a global missions organization. And they tell us that of the 17,000 people groups on the planet, only 7,000 remained entirely unreached. Okay, so I, I kind of blew the scale up there so you can see it there. That means only 41% of the entire global population has not heard the entire gospel. Well, that's still a lot. That's still a lot. But that's less than half. That's less than half. Friends, that, so, so let me show you. So this is from the Joshua Project. This is why I'm passionate and we're passionate about the nation of Japan. Here's their statistics on Japan. You can go on the gospel, uh, Joshua Project, put in any country and get the statistics. So there's 38, uh, 36 people groups in the nation. 23 of them are unreached, about 63.9%. Their total population is about 127 million. Christian adherents. Now, um, they're including anybody who falls under the umbrella of Christianity, including uh, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. So it's, it's not very fair. But you can see where the evangelical population, 0.58%. And friends, this is why we're supporting organizations like Christ Bible Institute. This is why Kyle and Chris, who sit right there, have, spent, have left to go to Japan to serve there because we want to see them come to know Christ. This is why, by the way, your contributions on a Sunday morning, they go to support Radius International. Ron and, and, and um, Candy Van Pearson, right? They're part of our congregation. Now they are there training missionaries. Their motto, 20 to life. You're not going out for one or two years. It's 20 to life that you're going out there. Right? This is why Liz Bonsangu, 20-year-old girl, she used to sit right over there. She went down to serve at Radius this year to help out those families. 
Friends, we want to be a part of that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell do not prevail against the church. Friends, when was the last time you were attacked by a set of gates? Doesn't happen. Gates don't move. You go against gates. And Jesus said the gates of hell cannot stand against the church. Friends, we want to be a part of that. In the midst of the deception and the disorder and the persecution, Jesus says, the gospel is going to get preached in all the nations. That's what we want to be a part of. That's the message of Mark 13. Isn't that way more exciting than finding out, well, so who's this abomination of desolation character? Don't don't worry about that. Get the ball down the field, folks. By the way, I think three people have fulfilled that role, and we can talk later. So, that's the first evidence that that Jesus is supreme and his sovereignty is unstoppable. The second one is verse 27 of Mark 13, the gathering of the elect. And then he, speaking of Jesus, will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. This verse is telling us two very encouraging things, friends. Number one, first, our mission is successful. Think about that. The mission of verse 10, we know it's successful. Our mission is successful because there are believers, the elect from all over the globe that he is collecting. Remember our study in Zechariah, I taught you that, that often four is a representative of the compass points. So we had the four winds, the four corners, the four horsemen. Uh, four is often to represent north, east, south, west, which is to say the corners of the earth, that there are believers in Christ everywhere. Amidst all this deception and disorder and persecution, there will be men and women, young and old, from all races, all languages, all cultures, calling out to be sons and daughters of the King, all turning from sin and turning to their Savior, all these eyes being open to the truth, all these lives being brought under the rule and peace of Christ, all these people coming from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light like Colossians 1.13 tells us. Second thing that one verse tells us is, that Christ is bringing us home. Sorry, that's the second thing. So first, our mission is successful. Second, Christ is bringing us home. He is gathering us up, friends. We are not left kind of blowing in the wind. We're not just out there uh, doomed forever to be some fledgling outpost here and there, just fighting for survival and nothing more. No, there is going to be a homecoming, and Christ is going to make it happen. That's what verse 27 teaches us. And the last evidence that Christ teaches us of his supremacy and sovereignty is there in verse 26, right before verse 27, the coming of the Son of Man, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And and notice, friends, notice the, the how that he's coming back, not in meekness and humility like his first advent, but in great power and glory. When the man who invented dynamite, created dynamite, he he didn't know how to describe this, this powerful force, this explosive power that he just created. So he named it after the word here, dunameo. And so the word dynamite was to, was now that we know it as dynamite, was created 
off of the word describing the power that Christ has, right? It's, it's pretty amazing. And it's not just dunamis, it's not just dynamite, now we always think of dynamite, but, but, but the idea was it's not just this power, Mark says it's great power like that. Friends, don't forget the illusion that all this is coming from is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So friends, this is what the prophecies of Mark 13 is trying to communicate. And I know there are so many details that are, that are so mouth-watering and tempting, we want to know. But if we focus on that and lose the discipleship focus and application, by the way, so what then is the application of, of Mark, of Jesus saying all these, what's the application? Well, that's the thing that comes at the very end, verse 32 to 35 or 37, and Jesus just says it five times. Stay awake. Be aware. Be vigilant. Endure the hardships that are going to come, but live with expectation. Friends, the, the simple application is we walk away from this amazing chapter so we just need to remind ourselves, don't let comforts dull you. Don't let comforts dull you. Don't let sufferings derail you. Don't let deception deceive you. Don't let persecutions frighten you. Stay on mission. Stay on mission. Endure the hardship that is going to come because it's a reality, because we are not part of this world. Expect it. Prepare for it. Be hopeful that he's coming back. Stay awake. Friends, have you fallen asleep somehow? Have you gotten discouraged because of trials and suffering? Have you lost sight of what life is all about? Stay awake. He's coming back. Maybe even today. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be ready. I'm not sure if that was Bob Dylan or... Somebody's saying about being ready. We want to be ready. Forgive us so, so often we're not. Forgive us because the blessings you give to us that are good blessings that we receive from your hand have sometimes dulled us to what really matters. Help us to use those blessings to increase our passion to get the job done. Father, thank you for the saints, our brothers and sisters who sat in this very room who have answered the call and left everything behind to go to the four corners of the earth. Thank you, Lord, for those of us, the majority of us, who are called to stay where you found us, but to be radically different in the midst of where you found us. Help us to stay awake, to keep our eye on the ball and get it down the field, Lord, so that when you come back, you find the congregation of Christ Community Church vigilant and awake not asleep at the wheel, Lord. Father, that is a gift that comes from you. And so, Lord, we pray for that this morning, that we would be a congregation, that we would be mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters who are awake, eagerly anticipating your return in great power and glory. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.